Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in the Gate Restaurant in Islington, which is a vegetarian vegan restaurant that I like a lot. And I'm here with a new friend, and he's so new that even though... Oh yes, thank you. Even though this isn't the first time we've met, it's the first time that I've heard his voice. So what I want him to do is introduce himself so that... I learn better how to pronounce his name because I've never really heard him say his name and then explain why the subaltern was denied the power of speech when we met before. Uh, hi Toby, uh, <laughs> Somnath Batabial here, yeah? that's, that's how I've been told to pronounce my name. Uh, in Bengali it's different, it's in, in English it's completely different. What is it in Bengali? It's Botobel. Botobel. Yeah. Yes, you, you got it, yes. But the English has told the Bengalis how to pronounce our names, isn't it? For centuries, as we have been told. So, um, I, uh, you've met me as um, a lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and you'd come to give us give a talk at the centre, and that's where we met. And, and you gave a listen. I gave a listen. <laughs> I had no choice. I had no voice. I mean, literally. <laughs> the poor guy. We went out to dinner, and... There was nothing but silence. It really was this uh, Spivakian moment, wasn't it? <laughs> but there were two others who kept the, us from complete void. That was good. The, the white people around the table found their voices. <laughs> what? In, in, at full throttle. Yeah, no one really minded the yeah, brown guy being quiet. <laughs> it's generational, it's understood. <laughs> yes, I mean, I didn't see a lot of service coming from you, but in all seriousness. But um, I was thrilled that Som agreed to come do the, the podcast today and I'm more than thrilled to hear his voice because it's funny when you've had quite an intimate evening with somebody yeah. but you don't know what their accent is like <laughs> or the, the register of their voice. I don't think I've ever had an evening like that. Well, before. it's a new experience. <laughs> there you go. Um, but tell us what, what you're up to, what's happening right now. I know, here's the breaking news, that very, very soon you have some fiction coming out. Yeah. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, the last couple of years, um, though I continue to pursue my academic world and I just finished my postdoctoral fellowship at Heidelberg <clears throat> and then was invited by SOAS to join. I was, I'd been writing <clears throat> a novel, a novel based in India, uh, based in Delhi, involving the media, both print and television, the police and the murky underworld of the capital, city of India. Uh, it's called The Price You Pay. It's very thrillerish. Uh, that's what I've been told as a genre. That's where it should be placed by the marketing people of HarperCollins. Uh, it came about in a very, very um, strange way. Um, I, I had been a journalist for about 10 years in India before I moved to the quieter academic corridors of UK. <laughs> but. Um, So, journalism never really left me. I continued to be a columnist with the Times of India. Now I'm a uh, bi-weekly columnist with the Sunday Guardian. So it kept that world open. I knew what was going on. I knew how the media was changing. And my research was on the media. My PhD was on Star News and Star Ananda, part of Murdoch's Global Empire, which was published by Routledge last year. So... Um, Amongst all of this, I was not very sure that 
Even as a practitioner, I understood the changes which was going on in the Indian media, and there were such quick changes, such huge, um, you know, epistemic shifts in, yeah. in in conversations which was going on. Nor as an outsider, academic lens, which I fixed on the media for the last few years, was I able to understand. And then I started fictionalizing and finding ways to articulate what I couldn't as a practitioner nor as an academic. You know, mm. There was a sudden space which seemed to open up to talk about things which both which neither academic, the academic world nor the journalistic world, uh, not the journalistic world offered me. Um, so you're doing it in a sense as a work of praxis. Yes, it's a thriller, probably with something related to reportage. Mm. In very much so. You know, but but these are these are grand words. It, uh, praxis. It's everyday, everyday. You are Bengali. I yes, mean, you guys invented half of these bloody concepts true. anyway. <laughs> uh, yes, it's a heavy burden to carry. But what oh, the, the story is like this. You know, in. Um, Somewhere in 2008-2009, I was sitting with a, a filmmaker from Pakistan and a very dear friend and we started talking about a film script. I had worked for a while in the Mumbai underworld, which was a very active, um, which is still very active. And I worked as a crime reporter for many years in Delhi, so I knew that world very intimately. So he was, he and, uh, and his wife, who's also a filmmaker, started talking about a film script and I started thinking of a film script. and. Over seven or eight days, I jotted down a plot. Then, as the PhD progressed, I forgot about it. And somewhere in 2009 or 10, I started rethinking it. Yeah. I was at the Jaipur Literature Festival, which is one of this now the world's biggest literature festivals, and I take quite an active part in the festival. So I was interviewing Vikram Seth. Um, I was interviewing Shehan Karunathilaka, who was the Commonwealth prize winner this year and the DSC prize winner, then Richard Ford, um, the great novelist from America. So I was part of that world and I was talking to Vikram about this plot I had. I'd got an artist friend to make a few sketches and was thinking of turning it into a graphic novel. The idea of the film got shelved because I met a graphic novelist who insisted that let's do, it a, do a graphic novel first. And Vikram apparently quite liked the idea. I also on the sidelines had a meeting with the publisher of HarperCollins, the publisher of HarperCollins yeah. and uh, Kartika, who wanted to give me a long ethnographic project in the northeast of India, which I'm embarking on from July, August and September now. So this, I was supposed to meet her. When I met her, she asked me, hey, I heard you have a story for me. And I said, how do you know? And said, Vikram has told me about this. So, I mean, I guess that worked to an advantage when Vikram said recommends anyone. He doesn't generally. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't generally recommend as far as I know. Uh, and I showed her the sketches and there was a brief one, you know, one paragraph summary. And she said, we will do the graphic novel, forget it, write the novel. And I said, I don't have a novel. She said, no, just think a novel. You have a novel here. There's something very interesting going on. Within about half an hour, as things happen in India, I had signed a three-book contract with Harper. One for this novel, one for a graphic novel, one for the research thing which I'm embarking on, which was the original book which we were supposed to do. Um, so I went back from this literature festival, suddenly a celebrity with agents pursuing me, um, 
you know, are the filmmakers contacting me? And I hadn't a bloody novel, and nor did I know that I would write a novel. Vikram, in front of a 10,000 audience when I was interviewing him, announced the novels. So all very grand, but I didn't have a novel. So I shut myself for four months in my Delhi flat, thinking of a story, thinking of a plot. How do you flesh out a straight film story, a, Holly, a Bollywood film story? And things started happening suddenly. You know, I used to do yoga in the morning and I'd run around with a diary everywhere and write down plots. And for four months I didn't write a word. I really wanted to be absolutely bursting with energy before I started writing. And then I went up to Heidelberg where I was still doing my postdoctoral fellowship. And I took a lovely flat by a lake and for nine months did nothing but write. I wrote and then re-edited for six months in Goa, you know. So I found really nice places to write. So I had the liberty as a postdoctoral fellow to travel the world and have a bit of money and do what I feel like doing. And then the story which emerged suddenly was not this original story I really thought about. The characters morphed, changed. And I, for the first time I realized, you know, when this pompous author say, oh, my character forced me to do this. And I used to always think, what do you mean? You, you, you bloody right. How can your character make you this? I realized actually what they said was true. Uh, the person I didn't like in the novel very much, the young reporter, and I, I was trying to kind of force an articulation of this young India, go, you know, outgoing, um, kind of aspiring, um, few moral um, problems, ready to trample on anyone. He came out the character which everyone liked. And the person I thought, this old, old, older uh, reporter who I might have transformed into had I stayed on in that world, he, he turned out to be the loser in the... And, and in the novels want good guys and bad guys. And people kind of sympathized with this character I didn't sympathize with. And I realized over writing of the story, he had morphed into that guy. You know, this young Indian uh, wanting to do things, uh, stars in his eyes. But also what happened was Delhi became a real character. You know, the old Delhi, which we knew in the 70s, 80s, and then the shift in the 90s of the economic liberalization happened, and this new India which emerged. And these were suddenly expressed in metaphorical terms with print and television, yeah. and which I didn't think of. I was just writing a Bollywood masala which would give me enough money for the rest of my life. Uh, now, now it's a sad novel with little money, I'm sure. Not as much as I hope from, from Bollywood. But what happened was that I also realized that things I hadn't spoken of in my journalistic days, the concerns I had, and as a distant academic with a bird's eye view on Indian media, I couldn't articulate those concerns too. I mean, theory didn't allow me those spaces. And then as this nice word, praxis, as you said, yes, I kind of was able to merge my academic concerns, my journalistic concerns, my concerns as a citizen uh, in, a, in a country, which in a transitional economy right. with all its problems. Um, so, and so, yeah, so after the, all of this, um, in the 20th of April, the book is being launched at the British Council and um, called The Price You Pay, HarperCollins Publishing. So all, all very good and grand. That's wonderful. And now you've only got to do two more. Yes. Uh, <laughs> gosh. Simply to meet your contractual obligations. Yes. But, but, the, but, the, but the, um, the second one, 
Yeah. Uh, the, which graphic I, novel. Uh, the graphic novel is being done with the artist, but the second one, which I am working on seriously right now, is on the northeast of India, Assam, where I grew up, and I have not only a deep love for the place, but also enormous concern because it has been one of the marginalized areas of India. The, all the eight states, um, there has been a separatist movement going on for the last 50, 60 years. Um, it, complex cultural history, part of India, not a part of India, people identifying with India. So all of this, I, the 2014 elections are coming up and I am situating myself in a small town, in an average small town, and observing over a long period of time what happens as the election, as a spectacle of performance of democracy. What happens with ordinary lives, situations? The elections are in 2014. I'm spending the summer months there, which will be very difficult. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then going back during the elections, staying after the elections. I've got a small grant from the SSRC. Social Science Research, Research Council, Council yes, in here in the UK or from the, from the, the US. States. So uh, it's in collaboration with um, a research being done on the Middle East, on China and on India, about the new political and the media. So my research fitted in quite well and uh, Srirupa Roy, who's heading the, who's a professor at the Göttingen University in Germany, um, the India Center there. She, I'd gone to that university for a talk three months back and Thankfully, she liked the talk and invited me to join the India part of the research and it's giving me a bit of money to do it. Normally, half of the time, you know, you're kind of floundering for cash and suddenly this came and fell into my lap and then Harper has offered a bit of money to do the research. So hopefully, uh, by end 2014, early 2015, I'll be able to start writing. And again, I, I don't know, I'm not going to write a straight ethnography. That doesn't work for, you know a major publishing house like Harper, which wants to sell thousands of books instead of 500 copies like Sage or Routledge. And I do feel that it's important to reach out to a larger audience. Sure. Yeah, so um, I'm almost thinking somewhere in the boundaries between fiction and non-fiction, um, boundaries of ethnography, uh, boundaries of, you know, um, just plain a good research book, you know, model like something like Amitav Ghosh's uh, In an Antique Land, where history and sure. ethnography mer in, merges very well. In uh, the podcast series, one of the conversations was with Stephen Newkey mm. and his ideas of ficto-criticism. Yeah. Uh, Joe in the Andaman Islands, yeah. for example. Wow. I think fit interestingly mm. with that. Uh, I like that term, ficto-criticism. That, yeah. that, that, that's a good one. Where these things blur. See, this is the this is the great thing about you know cultural theorists like you. You have perfect words for you know for every situation. Now this is the new term I'm going to uh, espouse. So I walked into a coffee shop yesterday, yeah. and as I was about to order my cup of tea, they turned to me and said, "Quick question: What do you think of Judith Butler?" Who said that? <laughs> the proprietor of the coffee shop. Uh, did they know you? Yes. And so did but he launch into, so. <laughs> <launch> into a <laughs> half an hour diatribe? I was allowed to, I was allowed one sentence, but right. I did something that I don't think HarperCollins would want you to do. Yeah. I insisted on two semicolons <laughs> in my sentence. <laughs> Harper, they do have a very strict copy editor, actually, and doesn't allow me, you know, 13 sentences long without any full stuff. No, yeah. In fact, you know, this is interesting that you say that. I mean, Writing this fiction and rewriting and re-editing and I've written books before where I do two edits and it's done after writing the main draft. Yes. 
this has gone through six edits, don't yeah. and it's been painstaking. And and um, thank you very, very much. much. Um, it's been uh, we've just been served very, very, very appetizing. It looks great. Yeah, so it you're smells great. Pasta, and I'm having Indo-Iraqi potato cake. You're, you're this transcultural, transnational human being living on the iPhone. So yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Toby, for lunch. Not you know, at you're all. paying for it. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you. Uh, now that that is. Um, Interesting, because one of the things that those presses do, on the one hand, is probably oppress you, so to speak, yeah. with the level of intervention. Yeah. On the other, they frequently have, as I understand it, very smart people who give your work a close reading in a way that nobody else would. Is that... Um, I, I would agree with you. you know, when you're writing, you think you have so much to say. Every, every word you say is sacred, and people are waiting um, <laughs> just to hear you talk and waffle on. Um, I had a very strict editor who sent me a version of my work just cutting out sections and said, look, I have done it, just give it a read. If you don't like it, we'll go back to including your sections. And so much of it actually made sense. You know, it was quicker, it was spacier, there was no need to go on about the asides and, you know, Bakhtinian open narratives. <laughs> I, I tried to talk about, you know, the Dostoyevsky moment of, you know, things happen, other things happen. And they said, Look, the bollocks, here's the yes. Bengali. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but, but, but this editor sat me down and said, Look, when Dostoyevsky was writing, there's no Twitter. People don't have attention span. Do you want your copy to sell 500, 1,000, 2,000, or do you want it to sell? Yes, well, I do want to. Well, now that you mention it, <laughs> I do want it to sell a bit. So yeah, well, there you go. I hope, I hope it, you know, it manages yeah. to do. But, but in terms of cutting things out, I used to be a speechwriter, mm. and in some of my assignments, I would just be working with one person, and I would get to know them really well and their cadences, and simply try to mimic that. Uh -huh. And normally, I did it well enough that. Having found out what they thought about things, we could just proceed. When I worked in a bureaucracy, it was much more complicated because that involved a lot of editing. And sometimes my drafts would come back with almost every word taken out in, say, a page and something else written over it. In most cases, this did improve the work. And demoralized, dispirited as I sometimes got, people up the line said, actually, you've done the hard work. Hmm. True. And we couldn't, we couldn't have, be we bothered could, yeah. doing this, frankly, yeah. but yeah. also we couldn't have done it. Yeah. I think that those lessons can be yeah. valuably learned. You mm. must have had this when you were first reporting, before you were writing a column and were doing more. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, no, I wrote for around eight years. It kind of, uh, I, uh, no, I, 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 would, I would disagree, actually. Um, okay. Um, given the standards of uh, Indian print journalism, my language wasn't improved. Uh, I was a far better writer as an undergrad English literature student. Um, it's, it's, um, it's striking how abysmally bad Indian print journalism, and I, I, and I speak as an insider, who's done it for eight to nine years, still write a column. It's abysmal. You know, there are a few good writers, but mostly in magazines. And there's some very good magazines now. But 
newspapers, daily newspapers, it's rotten. Especially when you're reading the Guardian in the morning, and then you have the I won't mention the names of the newspapers here, but you know, it's really sad to see how shoddily done that work is, and I, I'm, I'm part of it. Is there a difference between the English language and the other la other Indian languages newspapers? In, would you say, in terms of quality, if we can use that transcendental signifier? Mm. Transcendental signifier. Mm. I, I I wouldn't be able to answer it. Um, Objectively, just because there are so many language newspapers, I wouldn't know. That is one. Um, but there's some very, very quality newspapers which sell millions of copies. Malala Manorama, which I worked for their English um, magazine the week for a while. There is a great publication in Bengal, the Ananda Bazar Patrika. So there are huge ones. Um, but I don't know if the quality of regional newspapers are better. They cater to different audiences mm -hmm. and have, you know, and have evolved. And again, also the trajectories are different. You know, most of the vernacular papers, the old ones, have come through before independence, have identified with freedom struggles. They have different loyalties. Things are changing. In this post-liberalization era, things are changing. Loyalties are changing. The advertising market is, um, you know, kind of bringing in a similar audience everywhere. Everyone is middle class, everyone hankers for the same thing. So you imagine the audience almost in a very homogeneous fashion. Yeah. Be it somebody from Tamil Nadu, be it somebody from Bengal. They both eat pizzas. You see, so you know, there's a, now suddenly the differences are being merged, merged into this huge thing called Indian, the great Indian middle class. Yeah, yeah. And the different, they are hugely different. A Bengali intellectual in Calcutta and a, a Haryana or a Punjabi industrialist, industrialist will be very different in the taste. But somehow the media sees them as an undifferentiated uh, consumer. Well, this is one of the things you get, of course, in the United States mm. with the search for the Spanish-speaking consumer, mm. where not so much linguistic differences, but mm. lots of cultural differences, and in that case, of course, national differences mm. come into play. Now, you've finally gotten a mouthful of the pasta, mm. so let me, let me go on with another question so you can eat a little more. <laughs> Thinking of other media you've been involved in, You've also been involved uh, directing a documentary, at yep. least one that I'm familiar with. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, because it touches on a, a very important question that relates not to all of us, but of course is deeply related to the sudden modernizations mm. of India and China, mm. as well as the in some ways almost equally sudden everything very good thank very you very good thank you almost equally sudden and momentous modernizations we saw in the soviet union uh, the united states mm. and even this country mm. in earlier times mm. uh, mass environmental chaos as part of an industrial revolution mm. so i wondered if you could Maybe tell us, thank you for the water, a wee bit about your film, which was made with a couple of other people. Yeah. yeah. And I know it's been a, a festival success. So. Yeah, it's been very, it's been well received, um, uh, both in academic circles, in the universities, and in uh, film festivals. Um, it was called uh, Don't Cut My Head Off, um, made independently with uh, three other friends. I was a producer and um, scriptwriter 
you know, I was a theorist, as they call. Um, it came out of a moment in um, when the, I think it was 2010, when the COP15 was taking place in Copenhagen, um, and um, it was that big moment when Obama was getting the Nobel Peace Prize, when this was the COP meeting which was started where it will save the world. Over 35,000 people all across the globe descended on the city, NGOs, radicals, corporates, um, government officials, and at the end, nothing happened. And I was completely, you know, and I, I was, this was the first time I was part of this spectacle of UN officials, government officials, NGOs, everyone busy. This was where we were all supposed to have a voice, speak, and all of us left very disappointed with so many questions unanswered. We didn't know what went on. And I wanted to somehow find a way to articulate this absolute disappointment of people. And by people, I mean ordinary lives. And I wanted to write a short story about it. I wanted to write a novel about it. I thought about writing, new, uh, you know, uh, journal articles on it. And nothing, I mean, I, I, I didn't have the, you know, I was not finding the voice to say what I was really feeling. But what I had done was I had I'd got a camera from the university and my friend Mathi Pukhyonen, whom we met the other evening, who works the camera, and we both went and I shot a lot. I interviewed a lot of people. Um, and I had this body of images. Um, and I went back and I kept looking at it and then I figured that how about talking to people who had gone there from India, from, from other parts of the world, and what the experience was. So I traced a person in, a, in the northeast of India, which I was talking about, in Nagaland, one of the states in the northeast, in a remote village called Chizami, far away from Delhi and New York and Copenhagen. She had gone there, and I wanted to figure out what she felt. So we traveled there as a team. We traveled twice. We spent a long time. And I tried to understand the village, her, and what she went to say. She went with a lot of hope. And she was not an ordinary, another villager from the outskirts. She had won national awards. She was very active. She was an environmentalist. She was a school teacher. She had gone there in the hope. She had been taken there by these NGOs that you come, you will speak, you will tell the world. And she wanted to tell the world about what's happening in her village because of how we behaved, how her farming patterns are changing, how weather is changing, and what should be done. Because she has, she says she has a body of knowledge of a few hundred years passed on by her ancestors. They know how to cope, they know how to live. She said nothing, dismissed all of us. Thousands of communities like us who came together all across the world. No. And what came across to me there was that we have this mainstream, what we call mainstream, us people, this city living, you know, coordinating, networking, 
and then we have this thousands of other communities, not not few in number, whom we do not allow any space. So she tried to say that look, this is what you guys do. You know, whatever I do, however I live, I do not intrude on your lives in any way. But you guys, just by the way you live, by your callous ways, you're cutting me off. My lives are so that's you know, don't cut my head off. The, it came out. This title came because of this song we heard. This two Naga ladies singing. You know, uh, Naga, Nagaland was known for headhunters, um, and each tribe had this headhunters who would cut off heads and put it around the garland. And more heads you have, the stronger the tribe is. Of course, that practice has been outlawed by the English. Uh, a couple of hundred years back, but it went on till a hundred years back. So this song particularly was about this woman who was coming back to a village from a neighboring village and was this headhunters wanted to kill her. And she was trying to plead for her life to don't cut my head off. So it became a metaphorical uh, thing for the film itself, where there's a pleading going on, there's power involved, you know, and this helpless person who has done no harm, saying, don't cut my head off. I haven't done anything to you guys. So yeah, so this was the film in it. Well, it was one of those moments, wasn't it, where rather like Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize, mm. at some level, it's just one of the great outrages of all time, mm. and laughable, mm. even as it is risible. At another level, completely predictable. Um, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be outrage every time it happens. And I think some of this is partly to do perhaps with rurality. That rural living is buttonholed in certain very precise ways. Mm. Uh, that it is on the one hand a kind of Edenic idyll, where great beauty as well as risk occurs. It is a place where real subjectivity is experienced, as opposed to the obscured subjectivity, obscured humanity of the city, where people are real and reliable. But it is a place of backwardness. It is a place to be exploited. And it is never made the real centre of policy making. I mean, if you think about the centrality of the farm bill mm. to political economic life in the United States, it's mm. absolute. Mm. But that's because of urban-based corporations that rely on agricultural subsidies. Mm. And also, I think it's you know, one of the reasons why George Marcus calls for multi-sided ethnography, that if you want to understand what it's like to be a peasant in France, you'd better be able to do participant observation of what it's like to be an agricultural bureaucrat in Brussels because those two places are where a lot of that will be decided. If you want to understand what it's like to be a campesino in southern Mexico, mm -hmm. you'd better understand something about how the North American Free Trade Agreement was negotiated and how it is administered in Ottawa, Mexico City and Washington. You know, these are the things that have to be put together. But the idea that real knowledge can come from the, the global south mm. in these debates 
uh, is something it isn't observed most of the time, it seems to me. And not only by the, the obvious technocrats, mm. but by activists, NGOs, mm. and so on. There are certain forms of speech that are privileged. Mm. It, that's true. But I think I, what are the one thing I would not object to, but kind of, you know, put a red flag on immediately is the, the term you use here, Global South. What the, when I was working on the film, what I realized, what Seno, Seno Suha, this young lady who went, she was trying to emphasize that there are hundreds of, thousands of communities all across the world. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter the Global South, the Global North. What came across to me that this great, easy, almost an easy divide, this Global South and North, is no longer valid. There is a intense North in the global South, by which we mean powerful people. Yeah. You know, and there is a South in the so-called global yeah. North. No. So this has to be realized. No. You know. Yeah. I mean, so this easy terms need to be thought through. The other problem, and which you mentioned very correctly, is throughout the film, we had a problem. We didn't know where to place the camera because. It's so beautiful. It exoticizes just by, to any city dweller, it becomes romantic. And we had to fight all through to not exoticize. And it's almost impossible. It was just bloody beautiful. The, the way of life, you know. And the other thing is that when we talk of city life, the amazing thing about this place was that youngsters who go to Delhi, Calcutta, Gauhati to study, come back to the village. They live their life. You know, they don't want the city life. They come back. All, I mean, and this was amazing. They have, and the problem is whenever we speak of such things, it exoticizes it. Uh, each and every family, and this is a big village, yeah. contributes to each other's farms. They go and work on everyone else's lands equally. And it, it's a communal living. But they have hospitals, they have schools, they have cars, they have satellite television, Walt Disney. So it's not like a remote, out there, no engagement. That's not true at all. It's just that they choose not to destroy what we casually, you know, and th there's this bit of that bad word connected, maybe. It's changing very fast even there. But uh, I think the point is, which she was trying to say is, I don't affect you, you have no right to affect me. So at least hear me out, what I'm trying to say. You can't call this open space where everyone will come and have a chat. You, know, you had so HP software where you could connect on the screen and go and talk to a person in Nigeria. You could connect on the screen, you could talk, talk, talk to some villager in China. That's not true, it was all completely outside. It was not an open platform. You know, so this entire conversation about COP and coming together, it's both. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, I take a point about the Global South. It's a sometimes useful, sometimes unhelpful mm -hmm. metaphor. Mm. But the idea is definitely not simply to think of it in the terms of the, you know, Mercator's projection mm. map of the world, but to see that there are peasants, I mean, that are called, call themselves peasants, yeah. that live in the European Union. And uh, to, to recognize that, just as it is important to recognize that there are highly educated, powerful urban technocrats, and they have been forever. And they're very powerful peasants too. All through With India. Huge hands in lobbying and yeah. agricultural subsidy. I mean, yeah. they're very dangerous peasants. You know. So, yeah. just being a farmer doesn't mean that you're connected to the earth and, you know, so sure. those, those kind of. So, 
the politics of the farm lobby, especially in the US and in Europe, are huge. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no more complicated lobby. I mean, when yeah. people talk, as they endlessly do, about big tobacco and firearms and the military mm. in the US, the one they should look at is the farm lobby because they're the most successful in that they get the most bloody money on a routine basis for something that is, I mean, an incredibly wrought. It isn't, doesn't even help imperially yeah. Yeah. other than to distort more than anything else world markets. There is nothing distorting world markets probably as much as the United States Farm Bill. But anyway, I digress. So if folks want to find out more about the film, get hold of it. Where is there a place they can go? Is there a, an online presence or distributor? Uh, there is a distributor. It's um, the Magic Lanterns is uh, .co or .in. But uh, magiclanterns.co.in. I think is that. But magic. Uh, just a Google search for Magic Lanterns, and there are distributors. So yeah. the film is um, the, the copies of the CDs or DVDs rather uh, can be ordered from right. that. Um, and for the novel, it'll be the online, you know, the price you pay in two months. The price uh, it'll be no, no, on, we'll on yeah. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do in the last time, last uh, part of this conversation, is spend a bit of time talking about your academic work, mm -hmm. because you've done a PhD, you've done a postdoc, you're a, a professor here in London. Where does that, what part does that play, what interest does that have, and where can people find some of your scholarly work? Um, well, Ralph Litch has been publishing uh, most of my uh, work, the academic work. Um, um, the first one um, was a collected volume um, called Indian Mass Media and the Politics of Change, where again, four friends, we, all of us doing our PhD together from SOAS, had a massive, con big conference, which was came out to be very big success, and the papers were collected together, um, which looked at the Indian media from various angles. And the book was published by Routledge. It's out. It came out in 2011. The next year, in 2012, I published what was uh, India's first television ethnography um, and uh, of private channel, and definitely the first ethnography anywhere of a Murdoch organization. I um, managed to get um, to be unprecedented access into Star News and Star Ananda. Star News is the na one of the biggest Hindi national channels and its sister concern Star Ananda was the Bengali national, first Bengali national channel. Um, somehow, probably because of having been a journalist before, knowing a few people, I had access like, and I sometimes feel that, you know, I could have done much more, yes. One year within, I could, I was in the corporate sector, sitting with the corporate guys, unprecedented access into marketing strategies, selling, research, um, editorial meetings, I could go anywhere. Um, the marketing vice president was the best man at my wedding, so, you know, we became friends, and. A lot of things moved on, and, and it, was, it was a good work. It got reviewed very well. But what I actually managed to, I think, figure out was how 
a 24-hour news cycle works. What happens in that 24 hours? What is this term, which we all hear, TRP? How it actually works? How an audience is imagined? In fact, there is no imagination of the audience. The TRP in India lets you know what the audience is. There's no more imagination. And there's huge ramifications. The other part was how the corporate infringes on the editorial, which all of us now think we know. But for me, what is very interesting was how the editorial participated in this incursion of their, what was the sacred boundary once upon a time. But not only that, but going even beyond the editorial, uh, sorry, beyond, beyond the corporate to sell, to sell their programs. So when, what is news? News is what's not only sells, what sells to my parents, my mother, my father. The self became the target audience. And the self was middle class India because journalists are essentially middle class and were recruited from certain socioeconomic criteria, as, as was explained by the HR manager. So this very incestuous 5,000 rich people where TRP boxes were set, they were the journalists right, you know, voicing it back to their own homes. And suddenly you had this articulation. And I'm being very, of course, very quick and very brief here. Uh, it's a very complex story. But what emerges because of this nexus, this matchmaking between TRP ratings, advertising industry, targeted consumers, and journalists is a very middle-class notion of superpower India. But Arundhati Roy says it's one of the biggest PR cons of the century where a country where 450 million live below the poverty line can articulate itself as a superpower. Look at how the Guardian and the Independent represents India today to 15 years, 10 years back. The story is completely different. How did it change? Why do you believe this story? Statistically, it's not proven. We have 75,000 billionaires, yes. India is a country of 1.6 billion people. How have you fallen for this? You know, it's the regime of truth. It's what Foucault says. It was Stuart Hall said. In its old classical media theory on one hand, and this strange beast which has come about. In, in a transitional economy, this is what happens. You have to sell everything. Onions and iron ore, the news, everything is being sold. Mm. This strange beast. Mm. So yeah, so here you have this great myth about superpower India. And very nationalistic, very egoistic, you know, jingoism which goes on with this. It's scary, it's scary. And, I'm, and this is not a left liberal <coughs> kind of scare. It's, it's horrifying just to be, it's, that, it's not even that no one else is protesting, no one else has other things to say. It's just this voice is so powerful. You know, this television industry, this newspaper, and this convergence where Times of India and Times Television says the same thing. You know, when Malala Manorama and it's the Malayalam television says the same thing, because their target audience are the same TRP target. So you have just this one truth going on. It's not untrue, but it's a single story. <laughs> which is being articulated. Yeah. And the dangers of the single story. You know, what Chimamanda Adiche, I think, says, that the danger of the single story, which you keep on saying. Yeah. 
and which you increasingly you're telling to yourself, as you say. Yes. Because and there you start is a it. consanguinity of background, mm. of interest, of concern, mm. and those values, that education, that mm. socio-economic status, those cultural norms, manage to stand in for the nation, and the the great bulk of the population is uh, rendered barely relevant. Absolutely. Let me give you an example. Do I have some more time? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let me give you one story which will kind of bring out what I'm trying to say. Um, in, uh, you know, the left government in um, Bengal ruled for uh, 38 years. Finally, they had to leave because of their absolute stupidity. Um, one of the things which kind of started that downfall, I mean, many things had happened before, Beng uh, the left government came to power in Bengal riding on the back of land reforms, right, in the 70s. In 2006-2007, they decided to start building SEZs, what's called the socio uh, Special Economic Zones, where basically you give up vast tracts of land to big industries to do whatever they want to do. So, this is a village called Nandigram, where this Indonesian company was coming in, and 10,000 acres of farmland was being given to them, or at ridiculous prices, to build hydroelectric power dams or whatever it was. 2009, the bloody state erupted. Thousands of people died, there were clashes. It couldn't go forward. That was all very fine. Now, I was in Calcutta doing my research in 2006 and as it was happening, you know, early days. So when I, I had recorded hours and hours of telecast and I forgot about it, then while writing I had to start looking at the damn content and I suddenly found two days, and this is before Nandigram happened, where this, the vice president of this Indonesian uh, company had come in to Calcutta to go to Nandigram and inspect the place and there was a media frenzy. He was treated as a demigod and we had cameras outside his hotel. He'd go out at 3 o'clock at night, cameras would follow him. And then he goes to Nandigram. So there is this live broadcast being done. But this journalist is in Nandigram. This president or vice president has gone there. And the reporter is saying he's been welcomed here with flowers and garlands. Farmers are falling over the, you know, each other to embrace him. So the anchor asks a very straightforward question. Buddy, tell me, aren't farmers concerned that their lands will be taken away? And what the reporter says is, no, they realize it's for their own good. They're giving it to him because they realize there'll be jobs created. Now what's happening is this. Yep. Very good. Thanks. What happened was, the journalist was articulating his own middle-class aspiration. Now, there was no problem with the news organization itself, because the news organization's target audience was also middle-class. So the matchmaking happened. 
But the problem is, reality doesn't conform to a middle-class boy's articulation of reality. And it shattered three years later. So yeah, so that's our story. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. When you think of the old, I believe it was CBS Maxim, that it delivered news from nowhere, mm. of course that's impossible. Mm. But I guess what you can hope for is that given that we're delivering news from somewhere, we know where the bloody place is, and we know who is not part of the story. Right. right. And I guess it, it, it's that old German philosophical desire to find a way of objectifying your own situation, mm. to acknowledge this is what's going on, this is where I sit in it, and this is how that magnifies or diminishes other perspectives, other possibilities. This is where my speaking position derives from. This is the privilege or whatever it yeah, might be, yeah. you know. And it is very difficult, I think, for people to do that. One of the things I've always found fascinating about journalists, and I guess you're the first South Asian journalist I've recorded for one of these podcasts. And obviously, you're, you're doing many other things. Nowadays, you're a columnist rather than a reporter, yeah. and you've gone on to other careers. But as a profession, I have never met people who are more difficult to pin down to talk about themselves. Mm. So when you have a dinner conversation with them, they'll pour scorn on anybody who has a clear, well-defined perspective that explains how they see the world reflexively. But that's very strange you say that. But what they... Oh. And, and, and if you ask them... What are your values? Where do you come from? What matters to you? How did you get to be who you are? Things that they frequently want to know about people they're interviewing, they don't want to talk about it. Oh. Now, my, I, I should say I'm talking about a number of journalists from uh, principally the US and Australia, but often US journalists living abroad. Hmm. I mean, it must be must be a different culture, uh, because I generally find journalists to be very opinionated and, and ready to pronounce on anything and everything. I mean, the press club in Delhi. Someday, if you are in um, Delhi, I should take you there. Um, it's a place where, from 11 in the morning till 12 at night, everyone is bringing down governments, pronouncing on. You know, so, so revolutions happen every minute there. So journalists are happy to give you a coat and tell you what they think of the entire world uh, yes, at but, every moment. But what I mean is, oh, yeah. what about saying, I'm the story? Because that precept, yeah. at least in the US, don't make yourself the story, mm. is a very, very powerful one. Mm. Even though there are these old notions of new journalism, mm. as per Hunter S. Mm. Thompson, where... Mm. You are the story, mm. and you mythify things, mm. but you also create something mm. illuminating in the process. Mm. There's that dynamic, but by and large, keep yourself out of yeah. the story. No, so I, I take you that. Yes, that's what I, I take. Mean. Of course, of course. Yeah, not. Yeah, you are always at a distance. I mean, I think as a profession, I mean, and, and and to be fair, having been having done that, you need to kind of keep that distance to be able to write, to be able to. Um, pronounce judgment sometimes a bit too quickly. I think maybe there is the problem. That yeah. Because you're always on the outside, you pronounce too quickly and uh, too easily at times. Um, it's, a com it's a complex um, profession. And um, I, I have rarely... You know, my best stories come out of my days in journalism. This entire novel, you know, I, I probably gave out 5% of the stories. And I've been with kidnappers, I've had a gun pointed to my head, I've 
vanished for days, where girlfriends didn't know where I was, where bosses didn't know where I was. I have interviewed the biggest dons of underworld and just fascinating creatures. What about the, the vice chancellors that they sometimes masqueraded as during the day? Pardon me? What about the vice chancellors and university presidents that they sometimes masqueraded as during the day? Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know a few of them? <laughs> anyway, to be serious, yeah. So, no, you've seen mm. and you've been very involved mm. in that underworld side yeah. of the national, the global, mm. the economy. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, what I'm trying to say is that the problem is that, you know, I mean, as, as human beings, I think they're very interesting. The problem is this unprecedented amount of power to articulate everyone's reality, which comes along with the profession. And given this all-pervasive nature of this media beast, in India at least, you know, my father is 70 years old. A 21-year-old articulates the world's reality to him. And he believes it. That's a strange part. I said, come on. And it's this entire, suddenly, um, in your bedroom, every morning, somebody is telling you how to perceive the world, constantly. And this is new. And, and you know, in, in England or in America, which is a long history of television, people m might be able to relate to it slightly differently. In India, this is new. Televisions are new. You know, it's a new industry. People, everything, you know, whatever is reported is true. We're lucky in that um, there are some very good books that we've got mm. in English language scholarship mm. from South Asia about the media. I'm thinking of Ravi Sundaram's mm. Pirate Modernity. Mm. Um, somebody I haven't have done a podcast with but hope to is Arvind Rajagopal. Uh, his book obviously a lot mm. older than yours mm. but definitely trying to say what does it mean when the country is opening up economically for the media. Yeah. Right? You know. So now uh, newspapers are getting get a foreign direct investment which wasn't allowed before. Right. There's a strong possibility. I mean it's been almost passed now so things will change very dramatically. Things will change very dramatically and it's, it's a great challenge I think for those of us who believe in the autonomy of audiences the importance of local and personal mm. reading protocols, mm. the idea that meaning is not just given from the centre, to realise that actually a lot of the time, for many people in many parts of the world, it is. Mm. You know, right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Much of the yeah. time, I'm not a very critical reader of the media, mm. and I have been suffused with it most of my life. Mm. Uh, when my parents first moved to Australia, there was no television in the city we moved to, mm. even though it was the capital. Right. And there were no traffic lights either. This is the 1960s in the so-called first world. Wow. <laughs> but most of my life, I have lived in places where television was very much the norm. Mm. And so people perhaps do, on the one hand, incorporate it very much into their quotidian routines, but on the other, have a critical distance from mm. it. I wonder about the internet uh, in this sense, where it's, it came to many of us round about the same time. Mm. But I think, but differently, I think. Sure. In, yeah. Mm -hmm. The experience, especially now, uh, saying as the internet penetration goes on in in Africa or in Asia, it's with mobile handsets. You know, the, I think the entire experience is not PC based, and it'll be very different. No, very different. Mm. And also, a lot of those handsets are not smartphones. Are not smartphones. In the sense that yeah. we would use the term, yep. yeah. um, they also become in a sense, electricity sites mm. as much as anything. Mm. Uh, but they are very important and they do make a difference, but that is also changing here. That is what is becoming a norm here. Yeah. 
But you know, one of the things which I worry about, though, I mean, the, in this conversation of everything changing so quickly, quickly and this emerging digital cultures, yeah. Some of this old power dynamics still still remain, Toby. For me. Well, you studied Rupert Murdoch in the belly of the beast. Yes. Yes. How could you <laughs> think otherwise? True, true. No, but but think about this: that who gets to upload, who gets to download? We only download in Asia. We don't have uploading. Part. It just the bandwidth taken is just not forceful. So we still at the this old you know 1960s debate in a very roundabout way comes back to haunt us, and it doesn't go away. No. The Nuiko debates are still with us. The new world information communication order, the cultural imperialism paradigm, hmm. are routinely pronounced dead yeah. by those to whom it well serves that yeah. they be deemed dead. Yeah. But when I go to Latin America and I talk to ordinary people, they might use those words, mm. although they might, mm. but they are always using those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. These things aren't worn out yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. No? Because a thousand media studies professors in the Midwest of the U.S. Oh, say that yes. those things don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading this, and I can't even mention names here. This terrible book called Global News Fears, or the Global News Prism, written by two professors in America. And amazing how you can pronounce about China and India. I'm writing like India and Africa in the same chapter heading, India and Africa. Really? Can you look at the world like this in, in 2012? Anyway, it's a sad. This gets me hot under the collar. No, we don't want that. Yeah, we don't want that. We want you to leave the pod happy. Yeah, <laughs> it's been fascinating. And, and we want you. I want to extract a promise from you, uh, in a kind of surplus value yeah. from your labour, uh, which is that when book two, book three of the trilogy, as it were, not trilogy yeah, in the sense of the same concept, but yeah. the three books for HarperCollins come out, that you will re-enter the pod, you will stride into town on your charger. Happy to do that, share yes. with us your insights. And you'll still give me lunch. And you will get lunch or dinner or a cup of tea every time. That's how, that's how this works. the Cultural Studies podcast works. Done. Brilliant. Yes, okay. absolutely. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Thank you.